0: Welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. As we open in prayer, it's been mentioned that uh, the East Coast was particularly hard hit with a just barely sub-hurricane force storm that has got, what, three million people without power? So that's like twice the population of the state of Idaho, no power. So we're going to remember them in our prayers. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we're grateful that nothing escapes your notice, not the littlest thing in our lives and not the most havoc that can happen on the planet. And so this morning as we begin to break open your word, we ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom and discernment, insight and obedience so that we, we might put to work what we learn by the grace of your Holy Spirit. And as we are studying this morning and thinking about the things of Christ, Lord, we just want to cry out to you for the people on the East Coast who have been hit so hard with this series of storms. We pray, Lord, that you would give the uh, it, give ability to the crews to get the power back online and that there would be no loss of life from the, the, co- the, the effects of the storm. We pray for your, your mercy on that area. But more than anything, Lord, we pray that it might be a demonstration to people that, that, the, that the, earth's, the heavens declare the glory of God and that even all these things that happen, they are under your control and uh, people need but turn to you to have peace in their lives from these things. Not that they won't be affected by them, but that they will be children of the Most High. And Lord, so this morning we thank you for what you're going to do by using your word in the way that you will, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, last time, we finished up with, um, I believe, verse 14. Maybe it was a little farther than that. 15, 20? Were we that far? Yeah, 19, we finished up with 19 about uh, being pitied. If there's no resurrection, Christians would be the silliest and therefore the most to be pitied people on earth. Is that blurry? How's that? Pat's buying lunch. So let's open, uh, let's start by reading um, chapter 15 and we're gonna start at verse 12, and read through verse 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. Now, if Christ preached that has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember, this is the primary complaint Paul has in this section of the chapter, that there are people in Corinth who are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. But if there... your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep, excuse me, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men, Most to be pitied, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order: Christ the firstfruits; after that, those who are Christ at His coming. And then comes the end, when He delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, and when He has abolished all rule and authority. And all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. So our little checklist last week was seven checklists. If there's no resurrection, Corinthians, then even Christ has not been raised. And by the way, Corinthians, if there's no resurrection, then any preaching of the gospel is futile and meaningless. Oh, and also, if there's no resurrection, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ would be meaningless. The faith that you put in him when we came here the first time and preached Christ to you, and you believed, and you were saved, you were born again. That faith would be meaningless. If there's no resurrection, anyone preaching it would be a liar, not just misled, but a liar. If there is no resurrection, everyone would still be in their sins unforgiven. Number six, if there's no resurrection, those who went before, those whom the Apostles had preached, were even now present with Christ, would have eternally perished, and the hope we have to see them again is gone. Number seven, if there is no resurrection, Christians would be the silliest and therefore the most to be pitied people on earth because we believe a lie. And indeed, those seven things should have, had I been sitting in that congregation and I had been preaching this false doctrine, I hope I would have been awakened and, and brought to heal, as it were. Seven things that are, would mitigate against anything that the apostles had preached prior to that. The apostles and those who, are, who were sent to minister to the Corinthian church. So Paul says, if we hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. But then here comes, it's Friday. How many of you ever heard that, it's Friday but Sunday's a coming? If we have had hope, hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, all, we are to be, most to be pitied. But verse 20 says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Paul now turns to teaching truth again rather than demonstrating what would have been the result if there were no resurrection. Okay now, he says, remember this, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the firstfruits of all who would subsequently be raised as a result of faith in him. He was the representative sample such as what the Israelites would give to the priest to offer to the Lord, the first portion of their harvest the implication is that Christ's resurrection, <coughs> excuse me, precedes the resurrection of all those who follow after in the last days. The resurrection to life, that is, the resurrection to eternal life. Everyone who has ever trusted Christ, past and present, would at the time of the second coming be raised bodily to be with him forever. Now, the word asleep was commonly used in, the, in ancient times to refer to people who had passed from life to death. It did not connote ceasing to exist, but rather rest. Those who are asleep refers to their bodies, which are at rest. Their spirits were present right now in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul wants to dispense with the gloom of all that he has just said about the negative consequences of no resurrection. But now Christ has been raised. But now know that the gospel preaching is beautiful and useful. But now your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is meaningful and eternally important. But now the preaching of the gospel and all that attends it is truth incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now your sins are forgiven. But now those who have passed are waiting for us to meet them either in the air or with Christ in heaven eternally. But now, and but now, not only are you not silly, but you are wise and there is no need to pity you. Because the eternal God is giving you eternal life with him forever. That's what that but now means. But now Christ has been raised. So it's like Paul preached the gloom. And now he pulls back the page, pulls back the window curtains. And the sun shines through. Christ has been raised. Pay attention Corinthians. Christ has been raised from the dead. So they have no excuse now. And there will... There will still be false doctrines that will spread from Corinth and from other churches. It just happens. Unfortunately, there are wolves always involved in the ministry uh, where they shouldn't be, but they are there. But for now, Paul has their attention, I'm sure. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Be delighted, Corinthians. Any questions about that? (laughs) But now Christ has been raised. Any questions? (laughs) I didn't mean it that way. Any questions about the verse? So, verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. We are technologically trans- challenged this morning. I didn't actually raise my voice. It was a man, Paul said, who brought death, that is Adam. And it is a man who sanctioned and purchased eternal life through resurrection, the man God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul will continue his marvelous dissertation on the effects that the resurrection has on the lives of believers. Death is a physical body death, physical bodily death. And so resurrection will be a physical bodily resurrection. The connection here is clear. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead or of the dead. This is the the human aspect that Christ has. He, as a man, counteracted the sin that man fomented on the human race. It's counteracted seems such an impotent word. He upended it. He destroyed it. He made everyone who believes in him alive. Verse 22, and then we'll talk about both of them if you have any questions. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Just as Adam was the first fruits of all who would die... So Christ is the firstfruits of all who will be made to live forever through his redemptive work. Everyone born is subject to death eternal, and everyone born again is subject to life eternal. A man's spirit at death, if he is not a believer, is separated eternally from God. This is spiritual death. A man's spirit at death, if he is a believer, is reunited with his body and lives eternal with the eternal God. This is spiritual life final spiritual life. One cannot read universalism into this passage without doing great violence to the rest of Scripture. All die in Adam, but regarding eternal life in Christ, the all is qualified by numerous other passages that demonstrate that unbelievers, though eternally alive, will spend an eternity away from God, spiritually dead in hell. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46. These, speaking of the unbelievers, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Luke 16, 22 and 23. Now, the poor man died, speaking of the the story of Lazarus, um, the Lazarus that died and went to, to heaven. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. (laughs) And then 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And finally, Revelation 20.15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Paul is clearly referring here to being bodily resurrected because Scripture teaches that our spirits go to be with Christ immediately upon death. Any questions about that? About in, in, in each, each in its own order there, as Paul talked about earlier, um, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made eternally alive. Okay, verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. The word "order" translated order is a military term, and it depicts the idea of rank. Our resurrection and subsequent resurrections, did it die? Our resurrection and subsequent resurrections will occur in a specific order. Christ was first. We cannot know the time or the day, however, of the resurrection. Matthew twenty-four, thirty-six. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Matthew twenty-four forty-two. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know what day, which day your Lord is coming. Matthew twenty-four forty-four. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Remember that one. Even us. He's coming at an hour when we do not think He will. We're going to be surprised. We're going to be delighted. A lot of people are going to be upset, but we're going to be delighted. Yes. what it's saying. That's what it's saying. Yeah. Thank you for an easy question. (laughs) Yeah. There's spirit. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't have that. Yes. 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 We're going to talk about it. I've got a section on what, I I actually have the coordinates for the locations of these places. Um, Nirvana is just outside Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. So. It's part of eternity. Yes. Okay. So if you can be patient here, we, I actually am going to earth is still where it's at flat and the sun is circling us that's be on the alert for about what's to come here so for this reason be ready he says for the son of man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will verse 12, Matthew twenty four fifty. the master of that slave will come on a day and this is a parable he was talking about when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know Matthew twenty five thirteen. be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour First, there will be the resurrection of the church. Those who have come to know Christ between Pentecost and the rapture. And that is... um... Okay, I'm going the wrong way. Excuse me. First, there will be the resurrection of the church. Those will have come to know Christ between Pentecost and the rapture. First Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, uh, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive at the time will join those resurrected and meet the Lord in the air for the ascension into heaven. Second will be the resurrection of the tribulation saints, those who come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation who have been put to death for their faith. Revelation twenty four. Then I saw thrones, and, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead, and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Next will be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. Daniel twelve two. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground... Will be awake will awake those these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Isaiah twenty six, nineteen and twenty. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. This likely will occur simultaneously with the resurrection of the tribulation, saints. Everybody got that? The the period or the the order here? First, the church. Resurrection of the church. Those who are alive. Second, the resurrection of the tribulation saints. Next, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. But that will probably happen at the same time. I'm saying probably. I don't know for sure. As the, the tribulation saints. Um... During the millennial kingdom, there will be the resurrection of those who died during that time. It has been observed that it's possible that in many cases, because of the shortness of that time, some may well be raised just as soon as they die. The final resurrection will be that of the unrighteous, who will then be raised for eternal damnation at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign, John 5, 29, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, and then Revelation 21, 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire with brimstone, which is the second death. So this is the resurrection timeline. If uh, anyone wants that, I can send it to you. I actually had Jim check it out so I make sure. I, it looked right to me. There's stuff that's left out. Not, it's not fully filled out, but that's the general order of the resurrection timeline. I thought I had, I know I researched this stuff about. Let me just look ahead for a minute here. I might have to bring this back later. I did research and look into Hades and all of that, and I just I don't think I put it down in here. So I will bring that back if it's if it's not in here, if I don't see it as we're going through. And I thought I had that for us. So any questions besides those, which we will deal with? <laughs> Yes. Yes. Um, well, they're, okay, so during the millennial reign, it has been observed that it's possible that in many cases, because of the shortness of that time, some may well be raised as soon as they die. They're going to live a long time during that time of period. And so when they die, if, especially if they die towards the end of the millennium, they'll probably be raised right away. It's, it's been speculated that they'll be raised right away and, and spend eterni- they will then be spending the eternity as resurrected, joined with their bodies, their spirit joined to their bodies with Christ. So there's not an awful lot of information about that, and I hate to speculate too much. <laughs> we could make a movie. We could call it "Left Behind." I'm just kidding. Then, what's that? I just thought of that. I just thought of that, yeah. Verse 24, then comes the end. (coughs) When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Now, in this verse, the word translated then does not necessarily imply immediacy. It is a continuation of Paul's statement that each thing would occur in its own order. After Christ's resurrection, after the subsequent resurrections, comes the end of all things. At that ending, every rule, every power, every authority would be abolished by Christ leaving the Trinity as the only ruler in and of all things. And abolished means to to, to be, to I love it, to render unemployed. <laughs> the, those who have power, those who think that they're in charge of everything, they're going to be unemployed. Standing at the line at the state office looking for their unemployment. They will cease. They'll pass away. They'll be done away with. It'll be severed. It will be terminated. It will be rendered inoperative. It'll be abolished. Done away with. At that time, Christ will hand over the redeemed world to his Father. This does not imply inequality, but rather someone who was sent on a mission has completed that mission and returned victorious. Barclay puts it this way. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 28 read very strangely to us. We are used to thinking of the Father and the Son on terms of equality. But here Paul clearly and deliberately subordinates the Son to the Father. What he is thinking of is this. We can only use human terms and analogies. God gave to Jesus a task to do, to defeat sin and death and to liberate man. The day will come when that task will be fully and finally accomplished, and then, to put it in pictorial terms, the son will return to the father like a victor coming home, and the triumph of God will be complete. It is not a case of the son being subject to the father as a slave or even a servant is to a master. It is a case of one who, having accomplished the work that was given to him to do, returns with the glory of complete obedience as his crown. As God sent forth his son to redeem the world, so in the end he will receive back a world redeemed, and then there will be nothing in heaven and nothing in earth outside his love and power. He will return victorious. He is victorious. But then it will be seen, it will be stamped, and it will be done. As victory, victory made, victory continued, and victory won. Any questions about that? For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. When Paul uses, by the inspiration of the word of the Holy Spirit, the word must, he is saying essentially that no matter what, this will happen. Christ will reign, and he will subdue every every enemy, no matter who, no matter how powerful, no matter what. The word picture of putting his enemies under his feet comes from the ancient practice of a king sitting on a throne on an uprised dais that puts his feet above the heads of anybody who bows before him, not only that, but in many cases, when kings conquered peoples, they would take the subjugated rulers that they had won the victory over, and they would place their foot on their enemies' necks as a symbol of their conquering. And Christ will have his, all of his enemies under his feet, permanently, without exception, for eternity. And those who have attempted to overthrow him, Satan, the angels, the demons, and all, all the unrighteous, We'll spend an eternity in a lake of fire. Now, we should not be glad about that. We should be glad in the sense that Christ will be vindicated and his glory will be universe-wide, as it should be. But we should never be grateful or glad that there will be people going to the lake of fire. And we should that's what missions is all about. We should do all in our power to snatch them from that, to give them the gospel, to teach them that if they but trust Christ This does not have to be their part. It does not have to be their part. There's very little preaching, at least from what I see, very little preaching in most modern churches about hell. It's like we're afraid to to make people uncomfortable. Do you think it's going to be comfortable in the lake of fire? Are we doing those people any favors by not giving them that information? Not at all. We're obligated. And we want Christ to reign. We want all of his enemies to be under his feet. But humanly speaking, I want as few enemies under there as possible. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great? Now, we know that that's not how it was going to be. But our striving should be to spread the gospel to all who would hear. And then he says the last enemy that will be abolished is death in verse 26. This will come at the consummation of all things when death itself, which can occur during the millennial reign, will be abolished. The word for abolished is the same as the word used in verse 24. Death is the last and the greatest enemy of mankind and will be subdued to the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God the Father and of the Holy Spirit as well. Recently, when my mother-in-law passed away, and people were asking me, you know, you can't, it seems so unfair, so so horrendous, etc. I just reminded some of them, I said, death is our enemy. It's our enemy. It is not our friend. Christ has subjugated death. And death will end. Eva is there now. She knows all these things. What are you going to do? And it was it was an opportunity to bring the gospel to, to people because everybody faces this. Everybody faces death that is not going to be involved in the the, the final transformation, the final raising people into the air. It talks about it in First Thessalonians, the rapture. Everybody. And let it be said that, that death is the enemy of everybody. And Christ wins victory even over death. There is nothing that will not be subject to him. Nothing. That's got to be a comfort to all of us. He will reign. Any questions about those two verses? Verse 27. And I I often wonder, <laughs> I guess I should, I'll, I'll just look it up. I won't, I won't wonder in front of you. When you see words in caps, it's like it's shouting at you. Verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjected to him. Paul makes certain that none of the Corinthians will misunderstand this. And we are grateful for that provision to us as well, so that there's no misunderstanding today. He makes certain that the Corinthians know that the Father is not subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense of a king over a subject. He, God the Father, originally subjected everything to Christ and gave Christ all rule and authority. When Christ delivers everything back to the Father, he, Christ, will reassume his position. He never really left his position, but figuratively, he will reassume his position as the second person of the Trinity, which position he emptied himself of when he came to earth as a baby. Again, this does not imply inequality, but positional authority, positional authority. So Paul reminds the Corinthians, but... When he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted. God has accepted who put all things in subjected to him. Then in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. In this verse, Paul is not stipulating that the son is inferior to the father any more than the son of a king is inferior to the king. The father set things in motion and sent the Son to earth to redeem mankind and to present redeemed mankind back to the Father. And Jesus had, will have done that in the end, when the end comes. Yet in John, it is clear that the Father gives the elect to the Son as a gift. There is no contradiction here. The Godhead has redeemed mankind and taken mankind back to themselves. The process is what is described here. In his commentary, Charles Hodge puts it this way. We know, we know both of the last mentioned propositions are true. We know both of the last mentioned propositions are true because mortality is predicated of man in one aspect and immortality in another aspect. In one sense, he is mortal. In another sense, he is immortal. Immortal. In like manner, we know that the verbally inconsistent propositions, the son is subject to the father and the son is equal to the father, are both true. In one sense, he is subject, he subjected himself. Read Philippians. In another sense, he is equal. The son of a king may be the equal of his father in every attribute of his nature, although officially inferior. So is the eternal son of God. So the eternal son of God may be co-equal with the father, though officially, by choice, subordinate. What difficulty is there in this? What shade does it cast over the full Godhead of our adorable Redeemer? The subordination, however, here spoken of is not that of the human nature of Christ separately considered as when he is said to suffer or to die or to be ignorant, but is the official subordination of the incarnate Son of God, Son to God, as God. Does that make sense? Everybody understand that? He has chosen to be subordinate. He has chosen to come to this planet Redeem mankind, deliver redeemed mankind back to the Father, and then sit down to the right hand of God the Father on high, uh, his journey, his mission to do, the victory one. And the God will do that will have redeemed mankind face back to their feet. It's as good as it gets. It really is. Any questions about that? please, because we've got to go to the next verse, which is the, either the hardest or the second hardest verse in all of Scripture to translate. Questions, please, come on. Ask about my dodge, it's running. No, I'm just kidding. No, it is running. So then, here comes this verse. Otherwise, it's like drops, drops it right in here like a bomb. What will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Welcome to one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to interpret. Henry Morris said that this verse has between 30 and 40 interpretations. As we are, And by the way, what that means is there's probably, I didn't actually sit down and catalog them, but I'm guessing there's probably five or six worthy interpretations that have variations of each of them to the degree that there's 30 or 40 different interpretations possible ideals. As we are examining this verse, the first thing to remember is that the entire chapter is a polemic of Paul excoriating the Corinthians for not believing in the resurrection of the dead. He is proving by logic. He is proving by history and Old Testament scripture that the concept of the resurrection is thoroughly biblical. It is apparent that he has gone from logical arguments to ad hominem uh, reasoning. Now, by the way, when you hear ad hominem, you think of the word as an attack. It doesn't always mean that. It just means from the human, from the other side, from the anecdotal side. He's doing it both ways, or all three ways. He is now explaining the concept from a personal anecdotal view. The second thing to remember is that nowhere will Paul contradict the rest of Scripture. We know that baptism is for the living and is a direct sign of obedience and acknowledgement of one's salvation. The third thing to remember is that just because something is in Scripture does not mean that Scripture is advocating that thing. Chapters 8 through 11 should dissuade us of any of that, where Paul spent so much time castigating the Corinthians for the things that they were doing, we should not sue one another in court. But that's in 1 Corinthians. We should not, well, I won't go into the other ones because they're disgusting, but we shouldn't do any of those things. But they are pointed out in Scripture. Scripture. They were eating food sacrificed to idols and causing weaker believers to stumble. They were apparently complaining about supporting traveling ministries such as Paul's. Therefore, Paul worked to make sure no one could point a finger at him as one who fleeced the flock. The book of Ecclesiastes is a wealth of information showing how the world looks at things, and yet the scripture is not advocating that Christians do those things. Jim did a masterful job of opening up that book to us to see how people look at things under the sun as compared to the wisdom of God himself. With this in mind, we will look at just a few of the most common interpretations. One possible interpretation is that the statement, what will those do who are baptized from the dead, refers to the dead in Christ being an influence on the living to become baptized. What will you do in view of those who are baptized for the, as dead? <laughs> Remember that in the first century, baptism was an obedience statement that one had trusted Christ. The two went hand in hand. If someone asked you if you had been baptized, they were in effect asking you if you were a Christian. And if someone asked you if you were a Christian, they were in effect asking you if you had been baptized. So the interpretation would be thus: What about those who have become Christians because of the testimony of departed saints, the testimony of the dead? John MacArthur subscribes to this view. This interpretation is made more possible because of the fact that the Greek word for can also be translated because of or in reference to. Paul may have been referring to the exemplary lives of faithful believers who had died, implying that their lives had influenced the living to become baptized, that is to trust Christ. That's one possibility. Another possibility is the statement alludes to the idea that often in the early church, people would wait to be baptized sometimes until they were close to death. This refers to the fact that they were being baptized immediately before death. He mentions it in this way. Uh, it is in any event much more natural to take "cooper" in the sense of instead of or on behalf of. If we take it that way, there are three possibilities. It is suggested that the phrase refers to those who get themselves baptized in order to fill up the vacant places in the church which the dead have left. That's another one. The, new, the idea is that the new believer, the young Christian, comes into the church like a new recruit to take the place of the veterans who have served their campaign and earned their release. There is a great thought here. The church ever needs its replacements, and the new member is like a volunteer who fills, feeds up the, ble, the depleted ranks. That's actually the fourth. Got my, I got mixed up in these. There were so many. I actually went through the catalog and said, okay, we'll include this one and this one. No, not that one. Oh, if, if you want to study it, go right ahead. It just, but don't get sidetracked. One thing to remember, did the church baptize for the dead in the subsequent centuries? Is there any record of it except for Marcion and a few heretics? There is no record. The church did not do this. Keep that in mind as we're studying these. Another interpretation is that the word baptizing is re- baptism is referring to the troubles that come with trusting Christ and that Jesus himself referred to in Mark chapter 10, 39, where he said, They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right hand, one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. So, the idea is that it is the troubles that come from being be, being a Christian. And then the final, for our purposes, possibility, and I personally believe this is most likely the interpretation. Um, I like the, the first one as well, that it is in, in because of the dead or because of the influence of the dead on your life. <clears throat> this one is what I think is the most likely, and I'll explain why. I believe it's most likely the interpretation that the Corinthians had adopted another pagan practice into the church, that of baptizing for the dead. It was vicarious baptism, and it supposedly conferred some element of safety to one who had died without being baptized. Understand again that in the early church, the idea of being saved was closely tied up with the idea of being baptized, although baptism does not save. Paul was not advocating this. He was not arguing for it or against it. He was simply saying that the Corinthians, who are apparently dismissing the idea of the resurrection of the body, were foolish if they were practicing this silly custom while believing that there was no resurrection from the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, then why are you baptizing people for it? You nitwits! That's what I would have said. But I don't think the Greeks had a word for nitwit. Maybe the one that means moron. He was simply saying that the Corinthians were practicing a silly custom while believing that there was no resurrection from the dead. It was purely an an argument from practice and anecdote. This practice has no ongoing history in the church, and it was never a practice of the wider church. Some believe this is one of those things that Paul had had to set in order, and he abolished this practice when he came to Corinth, where it says in 1 Corinthians 11.34, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange or I will set in order when I come. So that, that is the last one. And from my perspective, with the Corinthians practicing so many illogical and unscriptural things that Paul had to correct, it seems that this was kind of in character. But the first one, the possibility that they were being baptized, what about those where it would have been translated? Um, what about those who have become Christians because of the testimony of departed saints? That's a good candidate as well. But the point to remember is this. What was Paul dealing with in this section? People who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Which is a thoroughly biblical t- teaching. Christ resurrected from the dead. We will resurrect from the dead bodily. And we're going to find out about the people who, whose bodies were destroyed or they were drowned or they were burned up and all of that stuff. It's like God is going, oh no, another one burned up. How am I going to resurrect him? We'll get to that. I don't want to steal that thunder. Any questions about this? Any comments? Jim, did you want to weigh in on that? Okay. I tried to cover the most common ones, but there were a lot of them. It was like wading through stuff. Some of them were really strange. So then Paul still arguing, still arguing about the resurrection. You know, and we're not going to make it through this next verse. There's so much here um, in this 10 words or however many words there are. Why do we come up with reasons to support our false ideas? It's because of one of the worst things that plagues mankind. It's called pride. We can be wrong about something, so very wrong, but yet we can adduce arguments that prove that we're right, even when we're wrong. Paul is preaching, is teaching, is, is writing to a group who love the idea of wisdom. They love the idea that they had something that others didn't. That breeds arrogance, it breeds pride, it breeds sin, it breeds destruction. And so in this entire section in chapter 15, he is dealing with a couple of false ideas. Um, This one seems to me at least to be the most pernicious, that there's no resurrection from the dead. And so he's going to do what he needs to do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to stamp it out, to make certain that the Corinthians have accurate information, that the Holy Spirit has the truth upon which to act in those lives. And he does indeed do it. And I'm, I'm going to just read the verse because he, he kind of drops this bombshell. Why are we also in danger every hour? Don't you realize that the preaching of the gospel puts a target on our back? makes us an enemy of the state. And one of the things we'll talk about next week was, uh, or, or when I, whenever I'm with you again is the crimes that Christians were accused of. And you're going to be surprised that it's going to sound like today. It's going to sound like today. And it was 20 centuries ago. The more things change, the more they are the same. Never let our pride stand in the way of the truth. Paul did not want the Corinthians' pride to stand in the way of the truth. The truth about the most important concept in all of Christianity, the resurrection from the dead. Corinthians, you need to get this right. We need to get this right. So that when we are preaching the gospel, this hope, this hope of the resurrection from the dead is thoroughly wound up, thoroughly woven in, to the message that is given to the world. And so I want to th- I'm I'm so grateful that Paul put this chapter in that the Holy Spirit put this chapter in to clean up to clear up any misconceptions about the mis- the resurrection. The next what there's 20 more 24 more verses I think or 28 more verses um, where he's going to talk about the danger that they were put in he's going to finish up this argument and then he's going to talk to them about what the resurrection will look like what their bodies all about the bodies. Because those are questions I think people even have today, and God will answer them for us. Let's, let's, go, to per, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you're not afraid to deal with every, every issue that is necessary and important that comes up in our lives. You have dealt with those things that are most necessity in the scriptures. Let us always repair to them and to, to your Holy Spirit through them. We thank you that you have written this for our instruction so that we might be better prepared to live lives that are honoring to you and that will give hope to others who do not know you yet. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.